Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more Half-Assed History. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about the history of gunpowder, which of course is a hugely important invention. It's helped to shape the course of the last thousand years of world history. Uh, it was first invented in China, as many uh, uh, listeners may already know, uh, and slowly made its way uh, you know, further and further throughout the world, uh, through the Middle East and into Europe, uh, importantly where it was uh, further developed by uh, military minds throughout the Middle Eastern Europe. And uh, as the first ever explosive ever developed, uh, it changed the way that wars were fought. And it opened up all sorts of, you know, very new and very exciting ways for humans to kill each other. Uh, one of, you know, one of our species' favourite pastimes, of course, is laying waste to our foes. Um, and also gunpowder obsoleted all sorts of other military technology. It really was a total game changer. It was, you know, it, it was used for firearms, artillery, other explosives, all sorts of stuff. And it, it had it had a huge impact on the way, as I say, the way that wars were fought. Uh, it also had other, you know, significant non-military applications as well as an explosive, particularly in civil engineering uh, with mining, tunneling, that sort of thing, as well as entertainment with fireworks, of course. But you might be surprised to learn that gunpowder didn't start out as a military technology or even, you know, to help people blast holes in rocks or even to provide a backdrop for bloody New Year's smooches. No, no, no. Gunpowder has a very, very interesting origin story indeed, as you'll discover. How's that for a bloody hook? There you go. Should keep you listening for, well, about three more minutes because we'll do the origin story straight up. I mean, I'm not going to do the origin story at the end of the podcast, am I? So I kind of, kind of stuff that one up. Okay, anyway. This topic was uh, was suggested by alert listener Manuel Chavariaga. So thanks, Manuel, old mate. Good on you. There's uh, a lot to get across here. We're going to uh, we're going to get across where and how gunpowder originated, um, how it was utilised, and which technologies it developed, uh, from fire lances to hand cannons to massive pieces of artillery. And we'll also talk about its geographical spread and how this influenced wars and politics at the time. And of course, we'll talk about its technological impact, uh, which, as I mentioned, changed the way that we uh, fought and dealt with wars forever. And then ultimately, it's uh, its final obsolescence as well. So as I say, a lot to cover. Let's get to it. We're going all the way back, all the way back here to, well, actually, it's a little hazy, a little hazy. There are a couple of different dates that we could pick. There's, a, there's an ancient Chinese text from 808 CE that has been uh, confirmed to refer to gunpowder. There's a formula and descriptions and all the rest of it. And there's another one from around 50 years later that talks about the dangers involved with gunpowder uh, alongside formulae and, and very vivid descriptions of what happens when it all goes wrong. Uh, here's some, uh, a quote from, from this text that was written uh, in, in, in the 850s. <clears throat> Some have heated together sulphur, arsenic disulfide, and saltpetre with honey. Smoke and flames result, so that their hands and faces have been burnt, and even the whole house burned down. So it really escalated there. <laughs> the old burns on the hands and face. Oh, no good. But then, yeah, your house is coming down, so it's obviously you're not, you, you know, you don't want to muck around with gunpowder. It's certainly going to... Uh, Certainly going to, uh, you know, you're going to pay the price for any sort of carelessness there. But there is evidence, if we go further back than 808 and, and this other text that was written about 50 years later, there is other evidence uh, from text from much, much earlier, much earlier indeed, that make what are ultimately unconfirmed reference to, uh, to things that might have been gunpowder. Um, all the way back in uh, 142 CE, uh, there's a text from a Taoist alchemist whose name was Wei Boyang, who wrote about how mixing three powders could result in them flying and dancing. Uh, now, gunpowder is the only explosive that's made of three powders. And so what old mate Wei you know, could very well have been talking about was gunpowder itself. We're not, we're not 100% sure of this. Uh, and around 300 CE, another Taoist text by a bloke whose name was Gi Hong. Uh, it contains the ingredients for an early form of gunpowder. Uh, and Taoist alchemists and philosophers, they clearly, they, they worked with the chemical components of gunpowder and experimented with making it. Um, but again, the text from 808 is widely considered to be the first reference to proper gunpowder, uh, as this was when it's actually, you know, is, is sort of being recognized for what it is. Because here's the interesting part, right? Here's the interesting part. All these Taoists, right? They weren't trying to develop a new weapon. They weren't trying to develop gunpowder for its military application or its, you know, its explosivity. They were alchemists, mate. They're alchemists. And what self-respecting alchemist isn't trying to either, A, turn lead into gold, or B, make the elixir of life? 
these Taoists, right, they were mucking about with sulfur and saltpeter and whatever else they, you know, whatever else they thought was going to be useful as they sought to transmute elements or to discover the secret to immortal life. And so gunpowder, believe it or not, actually started out, its, its, its career started its career as a medicine. It started its career as uh, supposed ingredients for the elixir of life. And this is reflected in its name in Chinese even today, which is Huo Yao, which translates literally as fire medicine. <laughs> so it's amazing to see that, that you know, the, the, the etymology of that in Chinese is, uh, has stuck around all, all the way through to today as fire medicine. Very interesting indeed. Um, but of course, you know, in time, gunpowder would prove to be uh, much more useful in cutting life shorter rather than extending it. Uh, but for the time being, these alchemists, you know, they're happy with uh, happy enough trying to experiment with uh, with trying to, li- trying to live forever. I mean, obviously, that's where it started off as. So fire medicine, that's where we, well, that's where we get that name for it there. But what is it, actually? Let's let's just take a quick pause here and actually talk about what gunpowder is. I mean, you know, what were they experimenting with? What is gunpowder? Um, gunpowder is, you'll be surprised to learn, a powder. <laughs> it's an explosive one, too. Uh, we're learning so much today, aren't we? It was just really getting across all sorts of stuff you didn't know. It is a mixture of sulfur, charcoal, and saltpeter. Uh, saltpeter is also known as nitre, uh, which is apparently the mineral form of potassium nitrate, Bit of gear for the old chemistry nerds listening. Enjoy that one. I've got no idea what's going on there. Um, it's what it's what's known as a low explosive rather than a high explosive, uh, as it detonates below the speed of sound. While high explosives are supersonic, they detonate at above the speed of sound. These are things like TNT, C4, uh, stuff that you uh, you might use today. Um, and you may hear gunpowder these days referred to as black powder. Uh, which differentiates it from the more modern smokeless powder. Now, we're going to talk about smokeless powder a little later on, but just to be clear, when we talk about gunpowder in this episode, we're talking about the original and the best. Well, actually, no, not the best. Not the best at all. The original, yes. The best, no. Smokeless powder, it's it's way better. But um, just to avoid confusion, when you talk about gunpowder these days, there's probably a good chance you're actually referring to smokeless powder and not the outdated black powder. So just for clarity, remember that today we're talking about black powder. When we say gunpowder, we mean the old old, outdated black powder. Anyway, these alchemists, right? They're fiddly farting around back years ago in China. They're fiddly farting around with sulfur, with charcoal, saltpeter. And by the time we reach the 10th century, right, people in China are waking up to the military applications of this fire medicine, of this gunpowder. And one of the first gunpowder weapons that is used making, is, is, is used, uh, you know, with this with this new invention, with this powder that, you know, people are very clearly waking up to the fact that it isn't going to extend your life. It's probably going to do the, quite, the, the exact opposite of that. Um, one of the first gunpowder weapons to be used, it was the fire arrow. Um, earlier in its development, interestingly, fi- gunpowder wasn't actually particularly explosive. It just it was, it was obviously enormously flammable, but it wasn't very explosive. So as a result, as early as 904, it was strapped to arrows to create fiery new ranged weapons. Now, shooting a fire arrow, it would provide a rush of oxygen as it flew, right? So you'd light, you'd light the, the powder, you'd, you'd fire it, and this influx of oxygen would mean that when it landed, after it landed, you know, it would just ignite anything around it because it was so highly flammable and it had got so much fuel with the oxygen. It'd, it'd create this enormous fire that, that would, you know, set... set fire more or less anything fantastic um a devastating weapon that could burn through wooden defenses raise buildings to the ground from a distance extremely effective against ships obviously so already gunpowder is making its presence felt um and innovation with gunpowder from here on out it was strongly encouraged by the uh, by the rulers of china at this point the the song dynasty uh, with the imperial court offering rich rewards to inventors who came with uh, came to them with new ideas of how to use it. For example, gunpowder was strapped to the uh, to the ass of some of these arrows, creating a, an early form of rocket artillery. Or another bloke uh, figured out you could put uh, the the gunpowder inside pots to create primitive gunpowder bombs, which is you know the, the precursor to, uh, to to grenades, that sort of thing. So the rise of gunpowder at this point in China's history it actually resulted in the Song Dynasty. They were so protective and so uh, they they recognised they're onto a, a real winner here. The Song Dynasty decreed that trading sulphur and saltpeter across borders to foreign lands was forbidden, so as to keep this powerful new technology from potential enemies. And uh, this is this is you know this is one of the reasons that it was kind of slow to spread to the rest of the world because uh, the Chinese were so keen to keep uh, the secret of gunpowder uh, to themselves in the same way as many of the other technologies. Silk is another great example of, of a technology that was a very closely guarded secret by the Chinese at, uh, around this sort of time in history. Anyway, 
More technologies for uh, uh, the, with the use of gunpowder developed from this point onwards. Of course, for instance, uh, as I say, the, the precursors to grenades, mines, other explosives, they grew in popularity as we head into the 12th century. I mentioned how fire arrows weren't very explosive, right? But people soon worked out how to make gunpowder not just burn, but actually explode. It was The secret was basically just add more saltpeter. Um, and this resulted in the first real explosives. Now, gunpowder, it was packed into bamboo tubes with porcelain fragments uh, inside it to create what was known as the thunderclap bomb. Uh, again, another early type of grenade, which was then lit and thrown at the enemy to explode. Um, another explosive known as the molten metal bomb was developed in the early 12th century, and it was said to be so powerful it could blast holes in anything that it exploded near. It would just disintegrate them entirely. Um, and gunpowder bombs also, it's, it's important to note, they also let off an enormous amount of smoke, which were, used, uh, which were useful to screen the movements of troops after they'd gone off. So it wasn't just the, uh, the damage that they could do with their explosions. It was also very useful as a, as a tactical tool. Uh, to mask your movements there of course gunpowder uh very yeah gives off a huge amount of uh, huge amount of smoke when it uh, when it ignites as, as i'm sure you're aware anyway explosives like this also used on ships of course uh, we got some surprise naval history here for you warships were equipped with trebuchets so they could fling these bombs at, at either each other or at targets on land set them on fire uh, and they de- developed further towards the end of the 12th century and into the 13th when rather than being packed into bamboo or whatever else, these gunpowder bombs were instead made with metal. And these bombs were much, much more powerfully explosive than their predecessors. They were used. They, they were made with just basic pig iron. And, you know, they weren't particularly um, uh, sophisticated or anything, just, just you know, hollow spheres of, of pig iron, more or less, that were filled with gunpowder and would explode and they would blast holes in, in city walls, destroy gates and buildings. And this changed siege warfare forever. Um, but it wasn't just explosives that, that were developed uh, with gunpowder early on. Because as we move away from explosives, another very significant gunpowder invention was the fire lance, which is more or less exactly what it sounds like. It was essentially just a spear with a gunpowder mechanism strapped to the other end. Uh, you'd fire the mechanism and a small explosion was the result. It would spew forth, you know, fire from the end of the end of the spear to quite a distance, actually. It started at about three metres and as, as the, the technology improved, at about 10 metres, uh, as gunpowder technology got better and better, it was able to uh, spew fire out there like that. Um, and... Uh, inside this this firing mechanism there were also shards of pottery or iron shrapnel packed in with the powder um so this wasn't quite a gun but it was very much the precursor uh it was the first ancestor of the modern firearm because it was essentially a cross between a spear a shotgun and a flamethrower now it, it, it led directly to the very next innovation of gunpowder weapons. And while, you know, most historians are hesitant to, to label the fire lance as a gun because it was more of a flamethrower than a gun, um, the next the next development that was, again, the direct sort of uh, the, the direct successor to the fire lance definitely was. This was, of course, the hand cannon or effectively, you know, <laughs> the fire lance without the actual lance. So what what happened was essentially, right, the gunpowder mechanism that was strapped to the fire lance was basically just a proto-gun, although, again, didn't fire bullet-like projectiles. It was fire and shrapnel or whatever else. So rather than make it from bamboo and strap it to the end of a spear, why not instead make it from metal and hold it in your hand? Now, this is what resulted in the hand it wasn't we just made a metal made of all sorts of stuff but this is what resulted in the in the hand cannon effectively um that you you had you you took the mechanism off of the off the lance held in your hand and loaded in the same way that you would but this time of course right this time you could uh you could pack it you could pack a projectile on top of the uh, on top of the powder and actually shoot what is effectively at this stage a bullet, right? And some fire lances had been built so big, they'd been built so large that they became impossible to wield. You couldn't pick them up and carry them around. So instead, they were mounted in the ground and fired from there. And by this stage, basically, by removing the lance part, you've effectively invented both the personal firearm and now the cannon with these enormous ones that had to be uh, mounted on the ground. Although, of course, there's a long way to go before they become recognizable as what we consider as modern firearms, right? So, Hand cannons, they started off as little more than tubes with an opening at one end, much like a fire lance, uh, you know, and, and again, it would be packed with powder and ignited. But the key difference here, key difference, as I say, 
is that they would be loaded with iron balls that are then fired from the tube. So rather than, you know, fire and shrapnel, the hand cannon actually shot projectiles. Now, they were large and unwieldy. They were difficult to use effectively. They weighed about six kilos. They couldn't be reloaded particularly easily. But despite this, they were devastatingly effective in war. Between hand cannons and, you know, actual real cannons, uh, which were more or less the same thing at this stage, you know, just just much bigger. Um, uh, By the end of the 13th century, gunpowder weapons had taken another big step forward with what is now effectively the gun. And now, obviously, you know, you compare it to guns these days, completely different. There's no automatic loading uh, system. There's no cartridges. There's there's the, the firing mechanism is basically just putting uh, you know a lit match into the uh, into the powder and, and and pointing the thing away from you before it goes off. So very very primitive by uh, by you know the mod- modern standards, but of course a huge huge leap forward. Uh, in the technological development of weaponry there. And as we move into the 14th century, we begin to see these, you know, this weaponry, we begin to see it spread from beyond China, through Central Asia, through, through the subcontinent, into the Middle East, into Europe. And additionally, of course, it also didn't just spread west, it also spread to the east, to the south, uh, Korea, Japan, and of course, through Southeast Asia. Now, the historical record on gunpowder weapons is a little all over the place, and historians are still in disagreement about the timing and the nature of the spread of gunpowder and guns. Japan and Korea, even with their proximity to China, they seem to have picked up on this new technology relatively slowly. Uh, Korea started producing gunpowder in the late 14th century, a long time after the Chinese were using it, after a Korean merchant named uh, Cho Museon bribed a Chinese merchant into sharing the formula. And, you know, the cat was out of the bag there, so uh, Korea was able to start producing gunpowder after that. Uh, And they developed gunpowder weapons, arrow rockets, guns, bombs, and uh, and other sorts of stuff to fight uh, the Japanese, particularly Japanese pirates. Um, Japan, on the other hand, they didn't make much use of gunpowder weapons until about the 15th or 16th centuries. Of course, you know, they knew about gunpowder long beforehand, but they really didn't uh, make the most of this technological marvel here. And gunpowder also arrived in Southeast Asia via invaders and traders, but it took a long time there to catch on properly. By the time the Portuguese arrived around the turn of the 16th century, basic firearms existed there, but it certainly was a lot slower to catch on in other parts of Asia when we compare it to, for example, example some of these Islamic empires uh, and, of course, Christendom as, as we move into Western Europe there. So, as we turn our attention now to the westward spread of gunpowder, there are theories about the Mongols bringing firearm technology with them during their 13th century westward invasion, but there's no consensus on this. It's not actually necessarily proven that the Mongols did bring firearm technology from China through, uh, you know, through Central Asia and, uh, and further towards uh, the Middle Eastern Europe there. So, gunpowder... You know, it's it's still a matter of debate whether it was uh, brought uh, brought westward by the Mongols. It may have been introduced to the Muslim world through India instead. Um, but whatever the case, right? Islamic scholars had de- they definitely knew about gunpowder. They definitely learned of gunpowder between uh, twelve forty and twelve eighty because it's it's written about by several scholars at this point. Guns, however, even though gunpowder, the secret of gunpowder, made it that far west, guns did not. Guns did not arrive uh, in the Islamic world until the mid-14th century. So despite gunpowder being familiar to Islamic scientists and chemists and engineers, firearms didn't arrive for actually quite a while afterwards. And as we move further west into Europe, the very first description of gunpowder was written by uh, the English... I mean, what do you call him? Philosopher? Scientist? Wizard? I don't know. I don't know really how to describe him anyway. Roger Bacon in uh, in, in 1267, he was one of the first uh, to write, uh, well, I think he was actually the first to write a, a formal description of gunpowder in Europe. Um, and again, while some Europeans were aware of gunpowder, guns were still a long way behind and they didn't emerge in Europe until again the mid-14th century. Now, could have been traders on the Silk Road, could have been Mongol invaders. Who knows? We don't know exactly how. How We can't trace it. I mean, you know, and it's not going to be one single incidence of this technology making its way across. It's going to be many, many instances of many different examples of it being brought through. So it's difficult to pinpoint exactly how and where it happened. But we do know that both Christendom and the Islamic world were well behind the Chinese in the discovery and the adoption of this, of this technology. But... Once guns caught on in that part of the world, in that part of the world, who boy, it was off to the races. Because now, as we move into the early modern period from the 15th century onwards, gunpowder took off like you wouldn't believe, and it prompted a huge number of changes to all aspects of warfare. Now, as you might imagine, 
It was, of course, the Chinese who led the way with their gunpowder technology, although this technology was slow to spread to the rest of the world given the way that the Chinese protected their secrets, even during the early modern period. The Chinese, they took us from fire lances and hand cannons to the Ming Dynasty's cutting-edge gunpowder innovations. During the Ming Dynasty, hand cannons were made smaller and more efficient, and large cannons were made, ev- were made even larger and even more powerful. Now, they still lacked anything in the way of modern accuracy, but Ming firearms, they were powerful and had for the first time enormous range small personal firearms they weighed only a few kilos and while they were admittedly quite inaccurate they were still you know they were still very effective in in more close quarters fighting while the uh, the large cannons the larger guns that they were uh, that they were developing during the Ming dynasty they got larger and larger peaking with uh, what was known as the great divine cannon which weighed over 600 kilograms and could fire these enormous iron cannonballs over great distances however Very interestingly, Chinese siege cannons actually didn't get much bigger than this. And here's the reason why. They simply weren't effective in the types of battles that the Chinese often had to fight. Chinese city uh, city defences were these huge, big, thick walls that could actually withstand bombardment from, you know, even something as big as the Great Divine Cannon. So that was was one reason that uh, these siege weapons didn't really catch on in the same way in China as they did in many other parts of the world. But the second reason was... One of the, for centuries, right, one of the principal foes of the Chinese were mounted nomads invading from the northwest. And huge, unwieldy, inaccurate cannons were not a particularly effective defense against mounted enemies. And so these great big cannons actually didn't catch on in China, right? As a result, the Chinese, they, they didn't pour too many resources into developing, uh, developing their larger cannons further. And so instead, for the next developments, we shift our focus over to Europe because there cannons became bigger and bigger and bigger because they were built to blast apart all the medieval defences such as castles with their curtain walls that had gone more or less uncontested for centuries. Of course, there were sea, you know, there were there were onagers and catapults and trebuchets and what have you, but all of them could not hold a candle to these new gunpowder-based siege weapons. Castle walls, right? They may have represented the pinnacle of medieval defences, but they were no match for the rise of gunpowder. Castles went from being nigh impregnable a lot of the time to hardly a blip on the radar for any force with large cannons, and the principal power behind the development of gunpowder-based siege weapons was the Duchy of Burgundy. Now, you'll remember Burgundy as uh, as England's key ally in the Hundred Years' War. By the time the 15th century rolled around, Burgundy was at the forefront of gunpowder technology in Europe, focusing all of its efforts on b- developing bigger and more powerful guns. And it was during the Hundred Years' War itself that the Burgundians actually deployed cannons that weighed almost a tonne. And these cannons could fire projectiles weighing almost 50 kilograms. And this laid waste to French castle defences, city walls, and it ushered in a new epoch of gunpowder weaponry in European theatres of war. Burgundian guns spread further and further afield as Europe began basically what is what you can see today as an arms race to harness the power, power of gunpowder. And the direct result of this was the development of the bombard, these huge mortar-like weapons that weighed five tons. They could fire projectiles that weighed over 130, 130 kilograms, which would Absolutely, it would completely obliterate, it would blast apart the by now flimsy stone defences of of yesteryear's medieval castles. And cannons didn't just get bigger, right, in the quest to dominate siege warfare and embarrass all of these stone castles that had been built. Cannons didn't just get bigger. They were made to be more efficient, easier to use, and, of course, much more accurate. And here's something very interesting. European cannon makers, they more or less perfected the cannon very quickly indeed, in the 1480s. By the time the 1480s have come along, the European cannon makers have more or less nailed it, right? When you think of a cannon, like imagine a cannon in your head, right? Long barrel mounted on two wheels. Um, You might associate this design, you know, with a conflict as late as the Napoleonic Wars in the 19th century. But the cannons of this design were actually developed in the 15th century, and they remained largely unchanged for over three 
hundred years. Now, of course, obviously there were minor improvements that were made here and there to things like the firing mechanism and safety and maneuverability and whatever else, but basic fundamental uh, you know, points of engineering for these cannons, like the length to bore ratio, thinner barrel walls, it meant that these weapons hit their apex very early and weren't much improved upon for hundreds of years afterwards. In fact, these European cannons, they outclassed even Chinese models, even the Chinese with their huge head start, right? So long they'd been the most advanced cannons in the world, were now outclassed by the European, uh, the European models. They were more accurate, they were easier to load and fire, they had greater range, they were essentially just much, much deadlier. And it wasn't just large guns that were further developed, of course. Smaller and more personal firearms flourished after their spread to the Middle East and to Europe, leading to the development of the arquebus and the musket. Now, these are called long guns. They're shoulder-mounted, and, and they're what we would today you know, associate with the word rifle, although they weren't rifles because they weren't rifled. But we'll talk about rifling a little bit later on. Um, these long guns, they were, of course, the successor of the hand cannon. Uh, they could be carried, wielded by a single person. Now, an arquebus, it would be often mounted on a hook-like stick, which you'd stick into the ground uh, and, and use kind of like a stand almost, uh, to, so you could steady it before firing. And uh, the reason for this is firing was a very, very tricky process. The firing mechanism uh, had to be lit by hand, which was a difficult bloody thing to do while you're trying to aim it at the same time. Basically, you had to light a match and hold it to the gun itself for it to fire. Uh, so a very tricky thing to do, and sometimes it actually involved two people firing at one person to hold and aim it and the other person to light it, kind of just like a small cannon, actually. Now, there are still arguments over exactly what the differences are between an arquebus and a musket. Some argue that the, the musket is a larger arquebus, while others say that there's no difference and that the terms are interchangeable. But whoever you slice it, across the 15th century, uh, these long guns, they they dominated. In any, in any pitch battle between you know two armies, long guns, the, the musket, the arquebus, whatever you want to call it, these, these were the dominant weapon uh, of these battlefields uh, from here on out. And of course, both Islamic and European powers, they made use of arquebuses, they made use of muskets, they, they took to the battlefield with uh, the soldiers now bereft of armour and instead heavily armed with these new long guns. In fact, gunpowder weapons were so instrumental to the development of several Islamic powers that these these uh, these empires, they became known as the gunpowder empires. The Ottoman Empire, the Mughal Empire, the Safavid Empire. Uh, these three empires, they made use of this new technology to seize and consolidate power around a centralised government uh, using long guns, cannons, huge siege guns uh, that all helped to forge the successes of these empires. And today, you know, they are known by some as the gunpowder empires. So important was gunpowder to their conquests and successes. And it wasn't long too before these long guns benefited from a new piece of technology that enabled uh, the gunpowder within them to be ignited in a much more effective and efficient way. So we're still seeing technological improvements on these gunpowder weapons, even as they're being used to, to dominate these, uh, these geopolitical arenas here and, and, and fight these wars. Because sometimes toward, sometime towards the end of the 15th century, the matchlock firing mechanism emerged. As I said, previous to this, anyone with a musket or an arquebus would have to manually light the weapon in order for it to fire or get someone else to light it. A matchlock, however, it held in place a lit slow match. So a, a slow match that was that was that was burning. Um, and that by the by the use of a lever, right, you could move the slow match to ignite the firing mechanism. Now this lever, of course, as I'm sure you may have already guessed, it soon became a trigger. And so matchlock weapons were the first to have triggers. So rather than just sticking a lit match at the arse end of a bunch of gunpowder and waiting for it to go off, you could now very specifically control when it went off by applying this burning uh, slow match to the powder and having it fire when you wanted it to. Now, obviously, the matchlock had its weaknesses. You had to keep the slow match alight the entire time, which was you know very difficult, very dangerous, especially on a battlefield or uh, around any quantity of gunpowder, you've got a burning, you've got an open, what is effectively an open flame. So very, very dangerous thing indeed. And this led in turn to the development of other firing mechanisms, the wheel lock, the flint lock, that sort of thing. We'll talk about that in the centuries to come. Um, all designed to make gunpowder as, I mean, I was going to say as safe, as safe for you, I guess, and as dangerous for the other person as possible, as safe as, 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 and as effective as it was possible for it to be. Gunpowder weapons, of course, uh, also found their way aboard ships uh, with nations around the world equipping their navies with cannons. Now, it's obviously a very iconic thing. You imagine the, the sailing ships of old in the, in the age of sail. They're bristling with these cannons. But using cannons on a ship, 
was a very complicated, very dangerous thing to do. Now, first and foremost, the reason for this wasn't actually the cannons themselves. It was the gunpowder. If you wanted to use cannons on a ship, it meant you had to take barrels and barrels of gunpowder with you on a vessel made of wood into the open ocean. So it was a very dangerous thing. And the, and the, the, the powder would be stored in special room, in a special room called the magazine. And from there, it would be taken out usually by powder boys. These were kids basically between the age of 10 and 14 who would um, who would ferry the powder from the from the magazine to the to the cannoneers, but it was still a very complicated, very dangerous thing to do. As I say, um, the actual firing of a cannon was potentially deadly for those actually doing it, not not so much the people who the cannon was aimed at, because in the close confines of a ship's below decks, loading and firing a cannon it was not an easy thing to do, and if it backfired, literally or figuratively, it wasn't pretty for anyone involved. The cannons obviously had massive recoil and a very limited amount of space to actually you know, have that recoil. So very dangerous indeed. However, cannons changed naval warfare just as they changed land-based warfare. And the ability of a nation to project its naval power often came down to how many cannons they could put in their ships, how big these cannons were, and how swiftly and how accurately the crews could fire them in a battle. And a lot of crews didn't get a lot of practice firing them. They didn't want to waste gunpowder by firing into you know at targets or just into the open ocean, so a lot of uh, cannon crews actually had never until they reached a battle would have never actually fired a cannon. They would just go through all the exercises and pretend. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a particularly exact science a lot of the time, and uh, and those nations that put the 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 money and the and the training into their crews did reap the rewards by having ultimately you know dominance of, of the waves there. Now of course naval cannons weren't just loaded with cannonballs. Often you know when we're talking about siege weapons and 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 the uh, the long guns they just had simple shot in them right like a, a cannonball or or a bullet. Uh, but naval cannons. Loaded with all sorts of stuff. Cannonballs were used, of course, but there was also uh, anti-personnel grape shot or canister shot as well as chain shot, uh, two smaller balls that were linked by a chain and they would fire off. They'd be fired through the rigging. They'd, they were designed to uh, to act as bolus, right? And they'd, they'd, they'd turn end over end and rip through uh, masts and rigging and sails and what have you. But by modern standards overall, naval, naval cannons, they were unwieldy, they were inaccurate, and they were very, very dangerous to use. But nonetheless, they set the standard for combat at sea and dominated 300 years of naval warfare from the 16th all the way through to the 19th century. So between siege cannons, personal long guns, and naval cannons, the face of warfare had changed forever, thanks to gunpowder. Gone was medieval combat with its heavy armor and its castle walls. Again, gunpowder rendered all of this obsolete. It's not really possible to understate the impact that gunpowder had on warfare. It completely, completely revolutionized the way that humans killed each other. Most notably, gunpowder obsoleted the huge majority of military technologies that until then, of course, had been in common use. So let's talk about some of the different military technologies, some of which you'd be familiar with, maybe some will be a, new, a bit newer to you, that was so, so drastically impacted by the rise of gunpowder. The first one, the most obvious one, of course, is armor, medieval armor. Personal firearms, such as the musket, they were able to penetrate armor quite easily, making it not just ineffective to wear, but an actual hindrance to the person inside it. So, you know, you imagine your heavily armoured knight astride a horse wearing all that plate armour. If you get a bloke with a musket in front of the, in front of a knight, they're toast. That's it, right? Gunpowder weapons quickly rendered armour obsolete. And by the 16th century, the heavy full plate armour that you associate with these medieval knights, it was well and truly in the rear view. Instead, soldiers would be lightly armoured. They'd be better able to move about. And of course, Instead, they would seek to fight at range with long guns and cannons rather than hand-to-hand. -hand. And of course, this meant that hand-to-hand -hand fighting with, with close-quarters weapons such as swords and axes and what have you, even spears, were equally fell out of favour, right? They weren't as effective because if you've got a sword, you're running towards someone, how many shots are they going to get? I mean, even with a slow-firing a slow uh, muzzle-loading rifle, you're going to be able to at least get a couple of shots up before this bloke comes up to you and starts hacking with the swords. That's not to say that swords completely fell out of favour. It's just that they definitely took a back seat to the rise of gunpowder weapons while armor was more or less rendered completely obsolete by uh, by the by the rise, especially the heavier musket, which could punch through even even the toughest, even the thickest uh, heavy armor there. Another good example of gunpowder's impact on warfare is the way that fortifications changed in its wake. We've already talked about how medieval castle walls were no match for siege cannons and bombards, and the direct consequence of this 
was the Star Fort or the Bastion Fort. Now, you may have seen one of these forts. You probably have. If not, have a quick look online. Um, it's very easy to see just how different they are to, to traditional castles. Star Forts, first of all, they're built much, much lower to the ground. There's no point having, you know, a great big tall wall. You're just giving enemy cannons more to aim at. And the walls were also built to be sloped, right? So not rather than just going straight up in the air like a traditional castle wall, these ones had a, a, a gentler, still still reasonably steep, but a, a gentler incline, uh, which, which made them a lot more resistant uh, to enemy siege cannon fire, bombards, whatever else. And uh, they were topped off a lot of the time with earth. You've seen, you've probably seen earthen fortifications on top of these star forts. And that, that actually uh, lessened the impact of bombard fire and made these enormously thick walls uh, much less likely uh, to, to fall and to crumble. Um, the, the It did conversely make them a lot easier to scale, right? So if you could actually get your invading army to the end, to, to the walls themselves, you know, you didn't need a battering ram, you didn't need anything to try to actually burst through the wall, you could just probably climb it. But the idea is that attackers would never actually make it that far. The thing that really sets star forts apart, uh, at least, you know, just on a visual level, of course, is their shape. Usually, as you can guess, they're in the shape of a star. And each point of the star would have a bastion, a little, a further little point that stuck out uh, just beyond the rest of the uh, the rest of the fort, where the guns would be mounted. And this, unlike the rounded walls of castles of yesteryear, it meant that there were no blind spots for attackers to hide from cannon fire. If you mount a cannon on top of a wall, you can't shoot it straight down at the people beneath you, right? So if attackers could reach the wall, they would be safe from cannon fire that was coming from directly above them, except with star forts, because it meant each bastion could cover its neighbours with its field of fire, meaning that you couldn't rush the walls and hide directly beneath the cannons while you're attacking, trying to sap away at the walls, because another bastion would be firing at the base of the, the wall opposite and shooting at you. And, you know, this this meant that while you wore, if one of the bastions fell, you were much more likely to, to you know, you were much more susceptible to be overrun with the, with sloped walls and uh, and no way to defend uh, from from things, from attackers that were right beneath you. It meant that each bastion, while covering each other, you know, sort of had had this synergy-based defense, if you want to look at it like that, because as I say, each each bastion could uh, could protect the other. Now, star forts, if you go and have a look at them, they look weird as hell. I mean, especially for military installations, they're almost like too aesthetic to be militarily practical, but they were the most effective way to utilize gunpowder weapons defensively. Star forts were eventually, I mean, they're eventually obsoleted, obviously, themselves, but, but any time that you see one, any time you see a star fort anywhere, you'll know now that it was built thanks to the dominance of gunpowder weapons weapons at the time of its construction because gunpowder weapons you know as both offensive and defensive tools star forts were the best way to not only make the most of your own gunpowder weapons but counteract what your opponent's gunpowder weapons would be able to do to you Gunpowder weapons also were um, far easier to use than previous range previous range weapons. So we've talked about how they obsoleted armor. We've talked about how they definitely help you know close range uh, weapons like the like the sword and the axe and, and the spear uh, bite the dust. But the other thing that they also obsoleted, largely speaking, is bows. I mean, to use a bow or a crossbow. It took training, it took practice, you know, years of it in many cases. And while the very best archers are, of course, a lot deadlier than uh, than, than than people with, uh, you know, slow muzzle-loading uh, muskets, um, it just took years to train them. It took years and years and years to train them. And so a gun, right, was much easier, much simpler to operate effectively. You know, it still required some training, but as a result, the, the rise of firearm weapons, of uh, gunpowder weapons, firearms, it became so much easier to turn a simple soldier into a long-range wielder of death when you compared what the, the resources at the time it, it, it required to turn them into an archer instead of just a gunner. You know, just put a, put a rifle in their hands and they're more or less good to go. It took a long time for archers to become truly obsolete due to, you know, the inaccuracy and the short range of early firearms, but the devastating effectiveness of guns compared to bows eventually won out, especially as guns became more advanced and more developed. Uh, longbows, crossbows, they, they just they just couldn't keep up with this with this you know, the slow march of technology there. So archers, they clung on to their relevance for as long as possible, but most European armies, they dispensed with them altogether by the end of the 16th century, and instead, firearm-wielding gunners had taken their place. And gunpowder also... Well, it didn't obsolete cavalry, uh, but it definitely reduced the impact, particularly of heavy cavalry, uh, which of course had been dominant during the Middle Ages outside of its encounters with the English longbow. Um, uh, heavy cavalry was enormously affected by by gunpowder and, and by gunpowder weapons because it just it just could you, you couldn't hope to 
uh, put together a successful charge of heavy cavalry by pro- providing enormous, even, no, I mean, even fast-moving targets for uh, for gunners here. And so instead, we moved, and as, this is why I say it didn't completely obsolete cavalry, because we move away from, from heavy cavalry to light cavalry. Light cavalry became the principal mounted unit used for scouting, used for skirmishing. Um, and and even cavalry units ended up becoming equipped with firearms, and and you know rather than these frontal charges from hundreds of years ago, instead they would focus on flanking and encirclement. And the Ottoman Empire, in particular, was famous for its mounted gunners. They used them to great effect. Um, but throughout the rest of the world, cavalry became less and less important in war, and this was particularly obvious in Central Asia, where the dominance. Of, of cavalry finally came to an end as gunpowder weapons allowed non-mountain co- uh, combatants to properly contest those that were on horses. Now, of course, these are just some examples. There are so many more, there, but there are, these are just some examples of the, of the steady march of technological pro, uh, progress, meaning that newer and newer gunpowder technologies, as they emerged, they continued to put older technologies to bed. But the basic principle of all gunpowder weapons, even as they developed, even they developed over the years, the basic principle of gunpowder weapons remained the same. You put a heap of power into it, in, a heap of powder into a tube. You put a projectile on top of the power, powder. You light the powder and point the tube at the thing that you don't want to be a thing anymore. And with the ongoing improvements to uh, to you know all these various gunpowder weapons, the, the fact that they only got better and better and better. It meant that their effectiveness, their efficiency, these designs that were continually made better and better, cannons and firearms, gunpowder weapons, they enjoyed unchallenged dominance for centuries and centuries of warfare. In the 16th century, the first revolvers began to emerge. Ottoman troops, they affixed blades to the end of their long guns to invent the bayonets, and muskets became heavier and heavier to punch through all kinds of armour, finally rendering it truly obsolete. In the 17th century, muzzle loading uh, uh, a long gun is made a lot easier with the invention of the paper cartridge. Previously, powder and shot were added separately, whereas a paper cartridge combines them in a, in a twist of paper for e- easier loading. Additionally, the flintlock becomes the dominant firing mechanism, uh, replacing matchlock, wheel lock, whatever. Uh, rather than the slow match of the matchlock, a flintlock would, uh, would would create a spark to ignite the powder, which was much more effective. And in the 18th century, gunpowder is improved by Sir William Congreve, who discovers a new way to manufacture it to make it twice as powerful as it was before. And people experiment further with breech-loading weapons rather than, tr- tr- than the traditional muzzle-loading weapons to try to make the, uh, the weapons fire a little bit faster. And finally... In the 19th century, the mini ball and rifling, uh, rifling I, I mentioned before, is what gives modern long guns their name, the rifle. Uh, rifling is, is putting helical grooves inside a gun's barrel. It makes them much more accurate, and it gave rise, of course, to the term rifle and also the, the, the outstanding accuracy of many long guns and, and rifles that we, even that we have today. Cartridges in the 18th century, uh, sorry, in the 19th century, also further developed. Some now include primers to make them full, uh, can make them fully self-contained. You no longer have to pour powder uh, into a uh, into the muzzle, into the barrel, put a, uh, a shot on top of it, tamp it down with a ramrod. Nope, you can just use a cartridge, put it straight in there, and that's it. Um, and additionally. Repeating weapons such as the Henry rifle, the Gatling gun, the Miram gun, these are all invented as well in the 19th century. And uh, all of these inventions, interestingly enough, push us further and further towards the ultimate obsolescence of gunpowder. But before we get there, I want to very briefly talk about some of the other uh uh, you know, ways that gunpowder was used, some of the other applications of this technology that wasn't uh, necessarily to do with warfare or the military, because gunpowder, it wasn't just used in warfare. It other, had, had other applications as an explosive, principally mainly breaking up large amounts of rock for various purposes. Um, believe it or not, gunpowder was used in mining for a long time. And the reason I say believe it, well, I guess you do. I mean, any story of any mining company, it's not going to be a very positive one. So it won't surprise you to learn, I guess, that uh, gunpowder, despite being enormously dangerous to use, I mean, even at the best of times, was still used in the close quarters of a, in the close confines of a mine. I mean, gunpowder gives off a, a very thick smoke when it's ignited, you know, not, not the sort of thing you want in a poorly ventilated mine, but it was much more effective than other rock breaking techniques. These other techniques, if you're curious, involved heating the rock up very hot and then chucking cold water on it, which is called fire setting. Um, you'll remember, astute listeners will remember that it's what Hannibal did while crossing the Alps, episode 40, if you want to hear about that. Um, other techniques include included very advanced things like 
hitting the rock with something until the rock broke. So as you can see, obviously, gunpowder is a fair bit more effective than fire setting or just hitting the rock. Uh, and so it saw a lot of use in mining from the mid-17th century. And, and I mean, you can't even begin to think of the, the number of people that were killed by gunpowder accidents in mine. Very, very dangerous, as you can imagine. And not just because of the smoke. The explosions were, were very difficult to control, and uh, particularly, especially in uh, in coal mines, where you also had the risk of igniting any flammable gases that were found in the mine shafts of coal mines as well. So gunpowder, extremely dangerous thing to be using while mining, but you know, maybe it won't, it won't surprise you to learn that it, it, it was indeed used in mining for many centuries indeed. Uh, it was also used, gunpowder was also used to dig tunnels for railways, although it wasn't particularly well suited to this task. It required a lot of powder for very little bang. But still, a fair few railway tunnels, they were successfully dug out with gunpowder, such as a stretch of the box tunnel in the UK. Um, and gunpowder was also used to dig canals. The Chinese used it in the 16th century to improve the uh, the Grand Canal near the Yellow River. And the French used it while digging out the Canal du Midi, which uh, connects the Mediterranean with the Atlantic. And it was even used, gunpowder was even used in the US during the construction of the Erie Canal in New York. And that was as late as, as the 19th century. So what happened? What happened to gunpowder? What toppled it from its perch as the pinnacle of military technology, not to mention, you know, the various engineering applications that it had? Well, the steady march of technological progress came for it in the same way that it comes for everything. And the reason that gunpowder is often referred to today as black powder is because of the technology or one of the technologies that emerged to obsolete it, smokeless powder. As a propellant, smokeless powder was vastly superior to gunpowder and it quickly eclipsed it in all forms of weaponry and uh, when it comes to gunpowder or black powder's use as an explosive as well i mentioned that gunpowder was a low explosive it's subsonic and in the back half of the 19th century much more much more powerful supersonic high explosives instead uh, began to emerge as replacements. Now, black powder weapons, they had some pretty severe drawbacks. They had to be manually loaded between shots. I mentioned this was not a quick process. And you might have seen this rep this whole process represented in media. The powder horn loading powder into the barrel, small lead shot put on in as well, the ramrod used to tamp it all down. It was slow, it was laborious. Paper cartridges were used, as I mentioned, but they were still loaded via the muzzle. They were still very slow. Some breech loading weapons uh, exper you know, experimented with different ways of loading uh, of loading these, these black powder weapons, but none were very effective because black powder left behind a very a thick and a black residue that attracted moisture and it would rust the inside of a weapon very quickly. It meant that constant cleaning was required and also meant that black powder weapons couldn't have too many moving parts. Otherwise, they would jam up. They'd become useless because of this residue that was left behind uh, by the powder. So even early breech-loading weapons were very heavily impacted by the fact that they you just couldn't keep them clean effectively, and so they would lock their jam and they'd become useless. So when smokeless powder was developed in the mid, mid to late 19th century, it completely changed the way that guns were made. Now, they could include auto-loading mechanisms in guns. Uh, they wouldn't end up filthy after almost every shot, you know, so th this this opened an enormous range of, of, of much far, of, of guns with much faster fire rates because they could auto, they could be auto-loaded uh, or, or at least get through rounds a lot faster. And uh, cartridges, right, cartridges could now develop to the point uh, alongside these auto-loading mechanisms, uh, which meant you had metallic cartridges which, with a firing mechanism inside them, as well as the, the powder and the projectile. So they're completely self-contained, which takes, again, just removes a lot of the reload time there. So guns went from being basically manually muzzle-loaded with black powder to breech-loaded with modern metal cartridges, enabled due to the relatively residue-free smokeless powder enabling complicated loading mechanisms. Black powder represented a hard ceiling on how quickly you could reload and operate a firearm just because of the residue and, and the gunk that would effectively build up inside it because of the, you know, because of a natural chemical byproduct of using of using black powder, one that didn't exist with, uh, with smokeless powder. So this led to further developments in firearms, machine guns and the like. But obviously that's beyond the scope of this episode. Suffice to say that no modern weapons would be remotely feasible with black powder these days. Not at all. Similarly, black powder as an explosive was obsoleted by the development of high explosives, as I mentioned, explosives that were much, much more powerful, uh, much, much more effective, uh, namely nitroglycerin, TNT, 
then dynamite, uh, all which were developed between 1840 and 1870. And dynamite famously was developed by this Swedish in, uh, inventor Alfred Nobel, for whom the, Alf- uh, for, for whom the Nobel Prize, of course, is named. Um, and it became the first... <laughs> Again, I was going to say safe. It, it became the first safe, in inverted commas, uh, alternative to black powder. You know, I say safe. It's still a bloody explosive, mate. But, you know, you know what I mean. It was relatively stable and it was, it, was much, um, it was much easier to use and manage without, you know, blowing your fingers off there. Now, you may have heard this story. Interesting little side note about dynamite and Alfred Nobel. Um, uh, the reason the Nobel Prize came to be was because Nobel actually read his premature obituary, which characterized him as a merchant of death for having invented dynamite. Of course, his invention was very quickly militarized news to kill people. Um, And as a result, he set aside most of his fortune to instead establish the Nobel Prize, as he didn't want to be remembered for dynamite, and bloody hell, it worked. I mean, of course, the Nobel Prize, it's largely considered as the pinnacle of of, of scientific accolades today. So Nobel, he definitely got the right end of the stick there. I mean, (laughs) instead of being known as as the merchant of death, his face is on the most prestigious scientific award in the world. Anyway, all the inventors of high explosives, all of the uh, obviously they, they brought about the end of black powder as a useful explosive, and uh, and all of the all of the advancements that were made with smokeless powder ended uh, gunpowder or black powder's use as a as a propellant in firearms, and so black powder, gunpowder, as we've called it for most of this episode, it slowly but surely slipped into obsolescence. It, like so many other technologies, both before and after it. It proved to just be a stepping stone to more developed and more effective technologies. But unlike many other technologies, gunpowder was uncontested in its dominance for centuries, and it forever changed the nature of human conflict with its impact on weaponry. Now, this isn't necessarily something to celebrate, and that's not what this episode is trying to achieve. It's difficult to claim that gunpowder was good for humanity, But humans are both very determined to and very good at killing each other. So I suppose at the end of the day, it is unsurprising that a technology such as gunpowder was harnessed so effectively, so devastatingly for so many years. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the history of gunpowder, and I hope you enjoyed it. And I, once again, I want to make it clear that this isn't necessarily an endorsement of the way that gunpowder has been used, but it is important to characterize and contextualize things like this. Even if they have been a net negative for the human race, it is very interesting to look at events and, uh, and technologies that have been detrimental to our species, just to, un- just to offer a greater understanding of how we got to the place that we are today in the world. And uh, and 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 some of the 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 developments, the consequences, and and the the occurrences that have that have led us to uh, to to the world that we live in, the world we occupy in the twenty first century. Anyway, that is that for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, all the the normal boring housekeeping stuff coming your way. Halfhousehistory.net. Subscribe there. Old episodes. Blah blah blah. Um, you can still buy shirts. I'm starting to run out. So if you want one, get in quick. Halfhousehistory.bigcartel.com. And you can support me on Patreon if you'd like. Uh, Patreon.com/slash/halfhousehistory. Please go and. Uh, consider uh, chucking me some money for this dumb podcast although it will always be free so if you want to listen to it for nothing that is absolutely no worries at all thank you to all the people however who do not listen to it for free i appreciate every single one of you who are chucking me money week in week out um it is it is the greatest of privileges to bring you this dumb podcast every week and and, and i thank you for your continued support and thank you to you as well even if you're not uh, even if you're not supporting me financially thank you for your support in just listening to this dumb podcast and, and sharing it with your friends and your enemies and people that you feel largely ambivalent about anyway that is that for this week i'll be back next week of course with more half house history so i'm looking forward to your company then in the meantime leaving you with a a question here posed on reddit a very relevant one we've been talking about gunpowder we've been talking about uh you know cannons and all sorts of things like that and so reddit historian captain magic trousers asks how did the church canonize saints before gunpowder